Our reading today is from Hebrews chapter 10, just a few verses. The heading is, A Call to Persevere. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And so now David is going to come and he's going to continue our series about persevering in faith. So welcome, David. It's lovely to have you with us. David hasn't been coming to the church for too long. He came from Birmingham, and he's been overseeing a church in Attleborough, and he joined us just before the closure started in February. So he may not be a known face to many of you, but I'm sure we'll get to know him over the next few years. So welcome, David, and thank you for coming. Thank you very much, Cathy. Um, and can I begin by expressing my very sincere thanks for uh, being invited to share in this latest series of studies, exploring uh, five deeply challenging but truly encouraging statements found in the New Testament letter uh, to the Hebrews, uh, all beginning with the words, let us. So two weeks ago, Ian kick-started the series considering the phrase, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And last Sunday, Peter very helpfully unpacked for us the words, let us make every effort to enter God's rest. And today, like um, hungry consumers of spiritual salads, um, we take another let us, let us from God's vegetable garden and sink our teeth into a third, let us draw near to God. On July the 9th, 1982, a man scaled a 14 foot high perimeter wall topped by revolving spikes and barbed wire, he ran unseen across an open courtyard, clambered up a drain, a drain pipe on the exterior of a building guarded by soldiers and armed security guards. He forced his way through an open window, wandered the corridors completely unchallenged for several minutes before entering a particular apartment where he sat on the bed of its occupant, Her Royal Highness, Queen Elizabeth II. Now the brazen intruder's name was Michael Fagan. He was an out of work painter and decorator who following his dreadfully belated seizure and incredibly dawdling arrest, informed the shame-faced authorities that he simply wanted a chat with his sovereign. Imagine a commoner being able so readily to get so close to the queen and in such an intimate setting. 
And I can tell you, for I was around at the time, the nation was shocked and stunned by the audacity and impudence of this intruder and interloper. Of course, this event represented not simply a breach of etiquette, wasn't simply a flouting of protocol or an intrusion of privacy. It was a scandal. It was an outrage. And its potential consequences could have been fatal. But maybe this incident from relatively recent history might give us some slight insight into the sense of stunned amazement and scandalized astonishment which a first century Jew might have felt at the thought of anyone at any time and anywhere being able to draw near to God. For centuries the very architecture of the tabernacle as it was called later the temple in Jerusalem itself modeled upon the template of that sacred tent this venue of Israelite worship spoke to would-be participants of the separation that existed between wayward human beings and a holy sin-hating God Initially a fence and then a wall encircled the whole site. No one should be able simply to blunder onto this consecrated ground. And beyond the courtyard precincts, once within the temple complex proper, travelling ever deeper and deeper into the building, segregated spaces success successively permitted fewer and fewer folk to pass beyond the boundary walls that divided one space from another. Its very design, you see, is to make it clear that only an ever more select and privileged group of people were authorised to progress further until the holy place was reached. This was a sacred space reserved just for priests and the duties they performed there. And beyond this hallowed chamber, but separated from it by a richly embroidered heavy curtain hanging from ceiling to floor, thus veiling it from the view even of these privileged priests, was the most holy place. It housed the Ark of the Covenant, which was a gold-covered box holding, among other things, the law's given to Moses. And atop the ark, at either end, were carved and gilded images of two angels, eyes cast downwards, gazing upon what was called the mercy seat. The whole thing was a visible earthly symbol of the unseen, invisible presence of Almighty God himself. And into this most sanctified of spaces, and even then on only one day throughout the entire year, just a single solitary soul, one man alone, the high priest, having put off his sumptuous garments, bathed and clothed in a simple white robe, was permitted to pass beyond the curtain 
this veil. On the Day of Atonement, in Hebrew, Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, on that day the high priest did indeed dare to draw near to God. But only because he bore the blood of a specially offered animal whose sacrificial death symbolically atoned for his and his people's sins, which he then sprinkled upon the mercy seat. So you see the very architecture and furniture, the rituals and the rites of Jewish worship all served to underline the seriousness of sin and the separation it brought between human beings and their holy God. However, this was not God's desire. The Bible begins with the story of creation. And it spells out how the first man and woman enjoyed unfettered access to their maker in that garden of Eden. An intimacy of fellowship conveyed in that poignant poetic expression found in Genesis chapter 3 which speaks of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, expecting, or so the text implies, that Adam and Eve should draw near to him as naturally and as readily as children would to their father, as undoubtedly they had done daily up till now. But this time, it was different. For this day, their disobedience had destroyed their innocence, carrying in its wake a sense of shame, a recognition of guilt, and with it, we're told, an attempt to hide from God. Drawing near was no longer possible. The consequence of disobedience was distance. Sin spoils, sin separates. And that is the sad, sorry saga of every sinful son of Adam, every wayward daughter of Eve from that day to this. God wants us to draw near, but our seditious rebellion against his rule, our errant disobedience to his will, our perverse defiance of his ways has erected a wall, has built a barrier. We are curtained off from our creator. And no one understood this, therefore, better than did the Jews. They knew that they could no longer simply draw near to God, such a holy God. Even their priests, who made and offered sacrifices daily on their behalf, who were spattered with the blood of these offerings, and had repeatedly, therefore, to wash themselves clean in pure water, did not dare pass beyond the curtain, that veil, into the most holy place. Only the high priest, only once a year, and only bearing the blood of atonement. Indeed, their scriptures tell of one of their kings. His name was Uzziah. He was a good man. He had known much blessing on his life from the Lord, 
much success during his time on the throne, who toward the end of his reign, we're told, allowed pride and a sense of self-importance to lead him to a moment of madness. He clearly thought he'd done enough to merit coming a little closer to God than hitherto, that it would be okay to enter the holy place, not the most holy place, just the space reserved for the priests, so that he might himself burn a little incense to God. But the priests were horrified and were rightly concerned for the king who was acting in such a spiritually presumptuous and scandalous manner, remonstrating with him to leave. But he refused. And we learn that his skin became leprous in an instant. Now those who suffered from such a disease were, according to the law of Moses, found in the Ark of the Covenant, were regarded as ritually unclean. They were barred even from the temple precincts, let alone from such a sacred space as he now dared to invade, proclaiming his right to be there on his own merits by virtue of his own qualities and accomplishments. Even a king in Israel discovered that drawing near to God was no trifling matter. And for the remainder of his life, he became a terrible and a very telling visual aid to all who entertained any idea to the contrary. And yet, here we have this staggering statement set before us today. Let us draw near to God. And either its Jewish author shares the same spiritual insanity and presumptuous insolence as once overtook the mind of Uzziah, or something has happened that is utterly unprecedented and absolutely unparalleled in human history and in the biblical record of Israelite worship as described in the scriptures before us, as indeed it has. So think with me first about the means, the means by which we draw near to God. A singularly superior and uniquely qualified high priest has offered a matchlessly perfect an absolutely unparalleled superlative sacrifice of his very self. For unlike all others who came before him, his life was utterly unspoiled by sin. And this act has therefore brought unconstrained, unhindered access to God, who inhabits the most holy place, to all who will draw near to him through the merits and the mercy of such a great priest over the house of God, as our writer puts it, to all who will draw near to him through a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. Our writer is speaking, of course, of Jesus, of whose dying moments on the cross, the Gospel of Matthew records these words, when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, 
the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. No wonder our writer calls it a new and living way. Significantly, when describing it as new, the writer of this letter, who didn't write in English, but in what's called Koine Greek, uh, the lingua franca of the Roman Empire of the first century, the everyday Greek of the marketplace, did not choose either of two terms more typically used of new things in his vocabulary. Not neos or kainos, but a much rarer word, prosphatos, which originally meant literally freshly slaughtered or recently killed, though it did come to have and convey the narrower meaning simply of new. But who can doubt that this author's choice of adjective was very deliberate. The astonishing and extraordinary freedom of access into the presence of God, which followers of Jesus enjoy, is indeed a new privilege. It is a novel honor, but it was bought at staggering cost, purchased by the blood of, at least when this writer wrote it, the recently killed, crucified Christ, who willingly offered himself up to be slaughtered as a sacrifice for sin. Back in February 2020, wealthy Americans paid the dollar equivalent of a quarter of a million pounds each for tickets to attend a dinner in Palm Beach and an opportunity to meet personally with one Donald Trump, who was there to raise funds for his, now we know, ill-fated uh, re-election campaign. But that's quite a price tag, isn't it, for an audience with a president? But infinitely more costly is the purchased price that secures an audience with one more royal than royalty itself. It procures access into the most holy place, into the presence of the sovereign Lord of the universe. For it was purchased by the self-giving sacrifice of his own dearly beloved son what we could not purchase for ourselves for the price tag was beyond our ability to deliver was paid in full by Christ on the cross pouring out his life unto death we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus and yet it is also a living way our writer says for unlike every other lamb that was led to the slaughter, Jesus, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, as John the Baptizer once described Jesus, did not stay dead. By the power of God, he was raised from death. And now, as our writer says back in chapter 7 and verse 24, Jesus lives forever. But the sense of this word is not simply that Jesus lives, that he is our risen Lord, as gloriously true and as encouraging as that is, but that the way he has opened for us is the way to life, 
It is life imparting, it is life sustaining, it is life enriching. You see, Jesus makes good on the optimistic hope the psalmist had of God, as expressed in the closing verse of a prayer poem he wrote, which we would call Psalm 16. The last line, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Or as Jesus himself once declared, recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 10 and verse 10, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Here then, our scripture shows us the means by which we may draw near to God through the high priestly ministry of Jesus, the mercy of his sacrificial death, the merit of his incomparable life. But our text also tells us about the manner in which we may do so. He says it is with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus has opened the way for his followers to enjoy the very closest communion, the most intimate fellowship with our sovereign creator, but who in Christ is also our gracious savior. But we are summoned to do so with integrity, certainty, liberty, and purity. We do it with integrity, or as our writer puts it, with a sincere heart. Literally, the word he uses there means made of truth, a made of truth heart. Jesus once had a conversation with a woman at a well in which she tried to deflect his very insightful questions about her personal life by raising the topic of worship, as you do. And in particular, a contemporary controversy that was raging between Samaritans and Jews as to whether her people or his had the best church, whether they were practicing the most authentic religious services. And his reply is telling. A time is coming, he said to her, and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth for they are the kinds of worshippers the Father seeks. Actually, God has always been more interested in the honesty of our approach and the sincerity of our hearts when we come to him in worship than whether our church has a spire and stained glass windows or is simply your front room. It is the substance and not its style that is crucial and key. He desires that we be genuine, that we be real. He has always hated hypocrisy and falsehood and deceit. Actually, this word hypocrite came into English from the language in which our writer originally wrote this letter. It's the Greek word hypocrites. It's the name that actually Greek speakers gave to an actor or, or a stage player. The term is, is made up of two Greek words, really, and it literally translates as an interpreter from underneath, hupo, krites. For Greek actors, as you may well know, 
wore large masks to show which character they were playing. And so they interpreted the story from underneath the masks. Hence our word, hypocrite, for someone pretending to be someone they are not. But Christian worship must never be a pretense because God can see past the sham, and past the bogus, past the fake. He wants us to be real, to be truthful, to be authentic. Worship must not be a mask that we wear for an hour or so on a Sunday. But the genuine reverence, the true respect that we offer to the Lord at all times and in all places. Jesus has given us the inestimable privilege of drawing near to God whenever and wherever and however. Let us not mock him by engaging in the spiritual equivalent of a game of let's pretend. But this verse shows us something else about the manner of our worship. It can be offered with certainty. Or as our writer puts it, with the full assurance that faith brings. Now that phrase actually looks back to a word, confidence, which he uses at the start of this sentence. Actually, it's a word that he's used before, back in chapter 4 and verse 16. It's another lettuce in God's vegetable garden. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. So here it is again. Christian confidence in worship derives from that most perfect sacrifice for sin which Jesus offered in his exalted role as that most excellent and great high priest over the house of God. For all God's gracious accommodation to the children of Israel, despite their disobedience, to make it possible for them to worship via the rites and the rituals, first in the tabernacle, later in the temple. It was by its very nature and character tentative and hesitant and cautious. The vast bulk of the nation were barred from the inner courts. Only one of the 12 tribes of Israel, acting as priests on behalf of the many, ventured closer some from the tribe of Levi. And just one among them, on but one day in the year, dared to step beyond the curtain, beyond the veil. What a contrast for believers in Jesus that we may draw near with such joyous freedom, with such buoyant conviction, so eloquently expressed in the poetry of Charles Wesley. I won't sing it because the voice is pretty bad today, but no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne. And what a glorious assurance to grasp afresh during these days of lockdown and social isolation when collective worship has been denied to us, to know that nothing and no one, not even a government edict, can rob us of access to our Heavenly Father and our fellowship in and with the Holy Spirit by the grace of our Lord Jesus the Christ. 
But you see, just as refreshing water in a reservoir reaches our homes via the pipeline which is attached to a faucet or tap, so does full assurance from the reservoir of Christ's grace reach our hearts via the conduit of faith or trust. No one can worship the Lord in spirit and in truth who does not do so in the confidence that comes from trusting that we may take Jesus at his word and thus act with certainty it is true. The principal of Spurgeon's College, when I trained there for ministry many years ago, was the Reverend Dr. Raymond Brown. He actually authored a commentary on the epistle to the Hebrews, in which he writes this. Faith can become strong and resilient, able to cope with the hazards and adversities of life, only if it is nurtured and nourished in the word of God. Our faith is in the one who is faithful, who has made and keeps his promises. So when Jesus invites us into a relationship with his Father, and assures us that we may come boldly into God's presence because he is the way to the Father, the truth about the Father, offers us life with the Father, then you may certainly take that check to the bank. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But more importantly, you need to cash it. Draw down the riches of his grace every time you draw near to God. We worship with integrity, with certainty, with liberty, with liberty. Or as our writer puts it, employing again the imagery taken from his own Jewish heritage, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Let me take you to a dramatic moment uh, recorded in the Bible in the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 24. Imagine we're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai and God plans to make a fresh covenant with his people. Remember the Lord has just miraculously delivered us, the Israelites, from our slavery in Egypt and now through Moses he has given us his law, divine guidance given to a rescued people on how to live in a right relationship with a holy, sin-hating God. But the order of events is crucial. God didn't give them the rule book in Egypt and say, try your best to keep these laws and then I'll think about rescuing you. Rather, he graciously rescued them first and then he instructed them on, on how to enjoy life under the lordship of a loving saviour. The rescue preceded the requirements. Grace came before law. And so God's people should want and choose to obey because we have been saved, not as a duty or obligation in order to be saved. And so Moses, who had come down the mountain with the commandments, also issued God's invitation to this bunch of rescued slaves to enter a covenant relationship with him. And after all this had been explained to them, the people declared, so we read, everything the Lord has said we will do. And so Moses had an altar built and bulls were sacrificed. And then Moses took half the blood of these animals and he poured it over the altar. 
And then he took the other half, carried in bowls, and he, wait for it, sprinkled it upon the assembled community, spattering them all with splotches and splashes of blood. Imagine standing there in the assembled throng, being showered by this crimson spray. It's quite a picture, isn't it? It's not your average day at church. Not that we're having average days at church these days. It isn't your typical congregational experience. It was momentous. It was memorable. And it was meant to be. And then the congregation repeated their commitment to the covenant. We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Except, of course, they didn't. And the long, tragic tale of Israelite history is punctuated by their failure to obey. All the desire was there, but the will was lacking. The law was a good teacher, for it instructed them in the right way to live, but the letter of the law is lifeless, for it lacks the means, the method, and the motive to keep it. And every time any Israelite, male or female, came to worship, Their consciences condemned them. They knew they had a guilty conscience. And it is the reason that year after year after year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered Kodesh HaKodeshim, the most holy place. And he had to sprinkle upon HaKaforet, the mercy seat, the gold-covered lid of the Ark of the Covenant, that blood that had to atone for his and his people's guilt and sin. But now, but now, that temporary cleansing secured by the sprinkling of blood of animals, whether upon the people or upon the priests or upon the mercy seat, which could never truly atone, has been superseded, it has been surpassed by the sacrifice of Christ which does that which no sprinkling could do before. Cleanse from a guilty conscience. It's what the Apostle Paul was speaking about when he used the word taken from the law courts of his day, justification. That is the moment when the judge pronounces upon the accused a verdict. Not guilty. Not guilty. It is the act for us whereby God doesn't merely forgive our sins, but actually imputes the righteousness of Christ. He credits us with the sinless merit of Jesus. As Paul puts it in his second letter to the Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us, Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's why our worship should be offered with liberty. Christians celebrate in true adoration, deep gratitude, overflowing thanksgiving, for we come as those who enjoy what Paul describes in Romans 8, 21, as the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Think of it like this. Instead of Michael Fagan having shamelessly blundered into the presence of Her Majesty the Queen 
and suffering the just penalty of his guilty trespass, that staggeringly, Her Majesty chose to do all that was necessary to adopt Michael as her own child. Not only would this be an amazingly generous act of forgiveness and his guilt would be a thing of the past, but this former commoner would now have the same right of access as any of her nearest and dearest. Though, of course, for this illustration to be anything like comparable, that welcome into the royal family would have to come at the agonizing cost of the life of one who truly held claim to her throne. Of course, I'm mindful that following the interview of Harry and Meghan, the idea of becoming a member of the royal family may have lost something of its former appeal but you take the point. Jesus brings us liberty in worship. In him we may enjoy the freedom that belongs to children in the presence of a loving father. And that summons us to experience an openness and and an ease as befits our status as family, loved and cherished, not simply as forgiven subjects but as treasured offspring, as welcome in his presence as his only begotten son, Jesus. So we draw near to God with integrity, with certainty, with liberty, but lastly with purity. As we've already noted, another feature of Old Testament worship involved serving priests regularly, repeatedly, and thoroughly needing to wash themselves before they could enter the holy place. But for the followers of Jesus, this experience too has been transcended. It has been transformed for our author rights of having our bodies washed with pure water. Though both the tense and the sense of the verb that he uses here is important, and it might very reasonably reasonably be translated, having been bathed. Almost certainly he is calling to the mind of his readers the unrepeatable moment of their baptism as believers, when their bodies were totally immersed in water. Not that he considered any mere external washing as being essential for worship, but referencing rather baptism as being that single symbolic moment when would-be disciples of Jesus made confession of him as Saviour and Lord, whose eternally efficacious sacrifice makes possible continuous inward purification and cleansing. It's what the Apostle John writes in his letter, his first epistle. The blood of Jesus goes on cleansing from all sin. A former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, once wrote a masterful definition of worship. Worship, he wrote, is the submission of all our nature to God It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness. It is the nourishment of mind with his truth. It is the purifying of imagination 
by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. Worship is indeed offering praise to God. But you know, the wonder of worship is also this, that which truly glorifies God edifies us. So if I were to offer you a little corollary of William Temple's summary to worship, it would be this. True worship transforms lives. I'll put it more simply. Praise purifies people. In the original language of this letter, the challenge of the scripture today is pros echometha. Let us draw near. We might equally translate this little word, we should draw near. Certainly we must not imagine this to be a take it or leave it invitation. It is a royal command. It is a sovereign summons. Not because God is the divine egotist, demanding that we should be forever telling him how great he is, though he is, but rather because worshipping God through the merit and the mercy of Jesus enriches the worshipper. Praise purifies people. We've sung it in this service. Wayne and Kathy Perrin, when I look into your holiness, when I gaze into your loveliness, when all things that surround become shadows in the light of you, when I found the joy of reaching your heart, when my will becomes enthroned in your love, when all things that surround become shadows in the light of you, I worship you, I worship you. The reason I live is to worship you. As a bird is made for the air, as a fish for the sea, as a camel for the desert, you and I were made to worship God. We do not live as we ought. We cannot become what we should until we live to the praise of God's glory. Why then would, why then should we resist the sovereign summons of Scripture? Let us draw near to God. Amen.